0: Um, My name is Wes, uh, one of the pastors here at Dunbar, grateful to see your faces, and those of you worshiping today online, I can't see your face, but glad for you as well. Um, We're going to do what we do each week, and uh, look at a passage from God's Word, talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. Before that, very very quickly, uh, one of the things, if you've looked at that Easter at Dunbar card, you might notice... um, Uh, one service on there called the Saturday Lament Service, which maybe it's it's new, it's different. We've never done that. It's something we want to try out this year. Just acknowledging the realities of we've been through really two years of sustained trial and loss with COVID, and that's just one thing. Um, On top of that, there are a myriad of other things that we have suffered through and lost and, and are grieving about, but we wanted to really create a space for that. One of the things about that Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday, is that for the people who first experienced that, there was no hope of the resurrection. It was just mourning the loss of their Savior and Lord. Um, And that was their experience, and we wanna create a space to kinda enter into that space of grieving, uh, a place to share our griefs, to bring them to God in a way that doesn't try to just rush ahead to the resurrection, but can kinda just sit and honor the difficulty Uh, And the beauty of grief, Uh, God tells us uh, plainly, Jesus said, that blessed are those who mourn. And sometimes we're not good at that, but uh, we're going to try to learn to do that better. So trying that out this year, uh, Saturday Lament Service, it'll be at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. I'd love to see you out if you'd like to be part of that. So now, uh, if you have a Bible with you or a Bible app, if you want to turn to John chapter 12, that's where we'll be at today. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. And when you found that, if you're able if you would stand with me and I'll read this passage for us together. John writes this, Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to it, or to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, would you illumine now the preaching of your word? Open hearts and minds and ears to what you want to reveal and speak to us today. Pray that you would break down any hindrance or block or anything that would get in the way of that, any distraction, Uh, even myself, God, that you would just help me get out of the way um, and people would see you and what you want to reveal to us today and that it would bring change. We would leave here differently today, seeing life, seeing ourselves, seeing everything we have is different than when we came in today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. Well, whether you're a fan of the books, uh, or you're like me and don't really read books, and you've only seen the films, uh, if you are familiar at all with uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, written by Gerald Tolkien, you probably know that being given the one ring to rule them all was no picnic for Frodo of the Shire. It was a tough call, right? And, and I suppose, you know, strictly speaking, he wasn't given the ring, like it's not his, but he was given stewardship over this cataclysmic piece of jewelry until he could deliver it to Mordor, where he could destroy it in the fires of Mount Doom. But as you see that over the course of his journey there, how that ring increasingly takes hold of Frodo, just takes over him because of its power and all this. And and you see the way Frodo is risking everything in order to hold that piece of jewelry secret and safe until he could deliver it to its final destination. I think as you watch that happen, I think you see two key concepts emerge as it relates to our most common understanding of what it means for us to have stewardship over anything. First concept I think you see revealed there is that we seem to view stewardship primarily as about guarding something, as about holding tightly onto something, whatever it is that's been entrusted into our care. I think we see that revealed there. I think the second thing that we see revealed from Frodo with his dealing with the ring is that the longer we hold on to something of someone else's, the greater the potential every single one of us has to begin to lose sight of to whom that thing truly belongs. So we're continuing in this kind of five-part mini-series, taking us through our core values, our our foundations. Uh, That is, like, those things are at the core of of everything we do and everything we are as a church. Values, as I've been saying from the beginning, are like building foundations. You know, see them, and yet everything is sustained and built up and, and supported by what's built on top of it. Same thing with values. And the values that we've looked at so far that are at the core of our identity, uh, that that we seek to build upon every day as as a church are the Word of God, prayer, and then last Sunday we looked at the value of community. But the value that I want to talk about with you for just a few minutes today is the value of stewardship. Stewardship, which as I've just Uh, Stated carries with it this understanding for most of us of holding tightly onto whatever it is that's been entrusted to us until whatever it is, whoever it is that's entrusted that thing to us requires it back. Simple examples of this would be things like bankers and school teachers. They are stewards of our treasures until we come to them and ask for those things back. They hold them safely. They hold them tightly for us. But although that's perhaps our most common understanding of what it means to steward something, and that's good, it's right. What if I were to tell you that there's another understanding of stewardship as well? A kind of steward that, a kind of stewardship that Jesus calls every single one of his kingdom citizens to, that requires us not to guard and hold tightly onto something, hold tightly onto whatever he's entrusted to us, but requires us instead to pour it out or to use it up. That that could also be stewardship the way Jesus defines it. Now it doesn't take much to grab hold of a concept like that or put it into practice when we think of something like the message of the gospel, right? That, that good news about what God has done in Jesus to free us from the powers of sin and death, restore us back into fellowship with God as, as sons and daughters. Uh, most of us will at least acknowledge that, that that's a message that's been entrusted to us, not to hold on to ourselves, but to pour out, to, to, to spread and, and plant wherever it is that, that we have opportunity to do it, even if yeah we're not always amazing and really good at putting that truth into practice. We'd acknowledge that message has been entrusted to us to use up, but where that understanding begins to become more problematic for most of us is when we're encouraged to apply that same understanding of stewardship to virtually anything else. Um, hear the call of Jesus to pour out your time, your finances, uh, treasured things that you hold dear to yourself, uh, any of the things that make us feel comfortable and safe and secure in life, and most, if not all of us, will immediately begin to, like, grab those things and pull them close to us with the justification of, but these things are mine. Which immediately highlights that second concept of stewardship that I just mentioned earlier, where the longer we hold on to something of someone else's, the more difficult it can be and the the more easy it is to begin to forget to whom those things truly belong. We've probably all experienced that to some degree in our own lives, whether it's that CD you borrowed from your brother, uh, a sweater you loaned from a friend, or or a dinner platter that someone brought by your house for a uh, dinner party a week ago, The, the longer you hold on to that borrowed thing whatever it is whether the longer it spends time in your car in your closet or in your cupboard the the more challenging it can be when that person comes and asks for that thing back to really have clarity about who that thing really belongs to all of a sudden you're like "I'm, i'm pretty sure this is mine no oh no it says susie gibbon on the back of the plate i guess it's yours um we, we, we all do this all the time. And what I'm trying to say is that at an infinitely greater level, in the end, we actually do this very same thing with God. For, I mean, as the Bible clearly commands in countless places, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down to us from the Father of heavenly lights. All things were made by Him and for Him. They are sustained and held together by the word of his power the apostle paul tells us in act 17 that even the place you were born the period in in history into which you were born all these things w- which allow us to really they, they make most of what we own possible those things are sovereignly controlled by him as well which is on the basis of this as well as countless other evidence is what led abraham kuyper to famously say there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which christ who is sovereign over all, doesn't cry, mine. But here's the thing. Even though, yes, God is, is the owner of all those things, like it's all his, he doesn't actually say, mine, and cling these things to himself, like some kind of enraged toddler with a toy there in preschool, or something like that. He, instead, he, he, he pours them out. He, he gives them graciously to us all His good things, including His Son, His most valuable possession. In order to bless us, He pours out all good things to us. And when we remember that, when we remember that it's all His and we're, we're just stewards of all that He's given, well then it makes that understanding of stewardship where God calls us to treasure as well as to pour out and use whatever He calls us to use and pour out. It's easy. It's easy to do that when we have that mindset correctly. But it's only when we lose sight of that reality. It's only when we begin to lose sight of to whom all the things we call mine truly belong that this understanding of stewardship becomes difficult and even offensive to us. Which leads us to our passage today and, and the beautiful, fragrant example we see in the life of Jesus' friend Mary. Mary. For as Mary lives out this understanding of stewardship real time, I think we're shown both the freedom of thine and the resentfulness of mine. Those two things. That's what I want to talk about today. The freedom of thine, seeing everything as God's, and the resentfulness of mine, of clinging to all these things as as mine. So if you close your Bible your Bible app, whatever it is, would you open them again with me to this passage? Follow along with me. John chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. As we dig now into this next value that's at the core of everything we are as a church and everything that we hope to be. Okay, so let's look first of all at the freedom of thine. The freedom of thine. So just to give us a little bit of context here to help us understand better, uh, Jesus and his disciples, were told here, arrive at a town called Bethany. It's about three kilometers outside of Jerusalem, and he's eating this dinner with some of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. A place, Bethany and and these people, company, uh, Jesus' three friends here, that has significance in particular because of what we read about happening just the chapter immediately before this in John chapter 11 where after being dead and buried for four days, Jesus had raised up Lazarus from the dead. So already there's a lot of significance with this place and this company Jesus is with. John also tells us this dinner is taking place just six days before Passover. Passover, if you didn't know, was a a yearly celebration that, that drew a nationwide pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to celebrate God's historic freedom of his people from slavery in Egypt. They had sacrificed the Passover lamb, been freed from God's judgment of the firstborn and released uh, to now head towards the promised land. This, This was what they were celebrating every year at Passover. But this particular Passover had significance here because this Passover was going to be the culmination of Jesus' purpose in coming, namely to be our Passover lamb, to give his life as a ransom for many. Which means knowing that, even if no one else was feeling it, there must have been a growing weight on on Jesus at this dinner, knowing that all he was about to face in the coming days. When you read the description of Jesus' friends that he's eating with here, it's almost kind of comical the way they all seem to have just slid into their familiar places of operation. Martha's serving, uh, as Martha always seemed to do. In Luke 10, we read of another visit uh, where Jesus comes over and Martha's busy serving away. Uh, Mary is at Jesus' feet, same place she was at last time which so infuriated Martha why isn't she helping me and Lazarus of course is there reclining at the table with Jesus which wasn't necessarily his you know familiar place but I just thought it was kind of funny that the last time Jesus was with Lazarus he was also very much reclining (laughs) so they're in their kind of familiar spots But what's unique about Mary in this scenario is that this time, rather than learning at Jesus' feet, she's worshiping there instead. Look again at verse 3. John says, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, obviously, this is a different culture. This is a different period in time, history. There's all kinds of things that happen in the Bible which seem very normal to the people happening there, but which seem maybe strange to us. So I don't know if you're like me. Maybe you read this and you think, well, it seems weird to me, but maybe that kind of stuff happened all the time in the Bible. Maybe that's just what people did. But you only need to look at Judas's reaction alone to realize that, no, this, this wasn't a normal occurrence. This wasn't a regular kind of thing that happened. It was strange for all the reasons you'd think. And it was also scandalous for reasons you might not think of if you didn't know the cultural background. For one thing, uh, perfume bottles then were not what they are today. Um, they, it wasn't like, you know, a little spritzer on top or something like that to like put just a little bit on. Uh, Matthew and Mark's parallel accounts of this account tell us that uh, this uh, ointment she had was in an alabaster flask, which when you cracked that thing open, I mean, it was open now, uh, and all of it had to be used. So. That, that's one thing that we see that we might not recognize right away from the text. Secondly, to deal with or handle someone else's feet was considered the work of the lowest servant in the house. No respectable Jewish person would ever do this and wash and touch someone else's feet. So scandalous in that sense. And then thirdly, perhaps most scandalous of all, for a woman to uncover and let down her hair in the presence of a man in this culture was considered either highly provocative or an expression of intimacy reserved for a husband or immediate family members. So, so Judas, he kind of focuses on the waste of financial resources alone. But as you can see, there's, there's much to question and, and kind of be shocked about here. What's she doing? And we're not told initially what, what had inspired Mary to perform this kind of extravagant act of reckless devotion here. If we had to judge by the context alone, we might think she's expressing her gratefulness for Jesus having resurrected her brother. But in response to Judas' indignance, which, I mean, if we can be fair, we might share with him if we were in that same scenario. Jesus brings clarity to her motivation there in verses 7 and 8, stating this. Look with me. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial for the poor you always have with you but you do not always have me now the language of that is a bit confusing what does he mean like let her keep it uh, uh, some of you will have at least a footnote in your Bible or maybe your Bible actually shows this alternate rendering in the Greek of the same uh, phrase here where Jesus says leave her alone for she intended to keep it for the day of my burial she intended to keep it for that day uh, um mark and, and matthew jesus uh, in their accounts jesus says what she has done is actually prepared my body for burial in anointing me that's what she's done she's gotten me ready for burial add to that what jesus goes on to say there in verse 8 about his impending departure and what immediately starts to emerge and become clear is that mary may actually be the very first one of jesus followers to actually get what he had repeatedly said about the fact that he was going to be put to death by the chief priests and rulers when he went to Jerusalem. She seems to be the first one to actually get it. Now, none of Jesus' followers seemed to grasp what he'd said about rising again after that. No, but what Mary seemed to at least painfully grasp was that Jesus was going to die. Which now, understanding that, makes her seemingly incomprehensible action suddenly quite powerful, quite moving. Because as an expression of her pure love and devotion for Jesus, rather than waiting to anoint his body after he's already died with this same ointment, what she does instead is she blesses Jesus now with the experience of what she would have done and performed for him after he died. She does it now so he can experience the blessing of it. And John tells us there at the last part of verse 3 that the fragrance of her offering fills up the whole home. And even though nobody else in the room to understand, seems to get and understand what she's doing, Jesus understands perfectly. He sees it, and he sees it as beautiful. Matthew's account of this same defense from Jesus, Jesus says, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Going on to add, truly I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here we are, 2,000 years later, doing that. It's true. But as it relates to the value that we're focusing on today, stewardship, what I want to highlight in particular is that I think the thing that freed Mary to perform this incredibly costly act of worship for Jesus is that she is stewarding at least three things according to this different understanding of stewardship that Jesus calls all of us to. She's stewarding her possessions, her reputation, and her heart with this different understanding of stewardship. I mean, her possessions, that's pretty obvious. That's the most clear to us. We can see that um, as she breaks this alabaster jar of costly ointment worth—I mean, if Judas's kind of estimate is right, and there's no reason to doubt that he is worth 300 denarii, which was worth uh, um, basically that's uh, a year's salary for a day laborer. It's worth all of that. and She just breaks it and and pours it out for Jesus. I mean, think about that. What do you own right now that's worth a year's salary? Imagine taking that thing or writing a check for that amount and just like giving it over. It it seems, it kind of gives us more of the sense of like, wow, she's really like wasting a lot here. This isn't just like, you know, your bottle of Chanel number five, like this is a lot. But then she actually stewards her reputation and her heart in the same extravagant way, humbling herself. the place of the lowest servant in ministering to jesus feet and then although there's nothing romantic or or sexual intended at all she's also expressing a spousal level of intimacy in in uncovering and letting down her hair in front of jesus i don't know why it seemed like a lot of commentators kind of shied away from acknowledging that but that's ultimately what she's doing she's expressing a spousal level of intimacy towards jesus I love the way Tim Keller expresses Mary's stewardship of these three treasure possessions using the words of that same hymn that we just sang this morning and, uh, and Karen was uh, referencing as well in her prayer. He says, do you know what she's actually doing? He says, when she puts down and breaks that glass jar, she's saying, take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold. She's pouring out all in front of him. When she goes to Jesus' feet, she's saying, take my will and make it thine, it shall be no longer mine. I, I, I wouldn't get down at someone's feet, but at, at your call, I will put my will aside. But when she lets down her hair, she's saying, take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever only all for thee. He goes on, what she's actually saying is, I'm willing to give you anything. I'm willing to give up anything. He says, she's not giving 10%. There's no way what she did here. This is a tithe of her net worth. It's more like 80 to 90% of it. So what she's doing at this point is saying, I'll follow you no matter what the cost. I'm going to follow you in spite of what it costs. And what I'm saying is that what I believe gave her the freedom to steward these costly things in this extravagant way was not only because she saw Jesus as being worthy of sacrificing everything for him, she was free to do this because she understood that everything she called mine was already his to begin with. I'm offering back to you what's already yours. You actually see uh, King David express this very same thing back in First Chronicles 29. He takes in this huge uh, offering and collection from the people of valuables and wealth in order to construct the temple. And in his prayer of thanksgiving, he says, But who am I, and what is this people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. We're only giving back to you what's already yours. And all I want to ask you to consider in relation to your own life and worship today is, do you have that same freedom? Is that a freedom that you know and experience, and live out with everything that you call mine. I'll freely confess to you, I, I have this freedom. Sometimes. Sometimes. But not nearly often enough. It's oftentimes when I'm presented with an opportunity to steward my life, my reputation, my possessions like this, and yet rather than pour them out freely with the understanding that whatever Jesus calls me to pour out and lay down is already his and that if he entrusted me with such valuable things to begin with he can easily do it again a thousand times over instead I I clutch those things I cling to them so tightly as mine excusing away my disobedience and my kind of scarcity mindset with the self-justifying belief that, no, I'm stewarding these things. I'm holding tightly to them just like I should. I'm valuing them like God would want. Believing that stewardship can only mean guarding safely the treasures that are mine. Which is exactly the attitude we see demonstrated in Judas's indignation in response to Mary's stewardship in the next verses of our passage. So let's look next here at the resentfulness of mine. The resentfulness of seeing all these things not as thine, but as mine. And to be fair, it's not immediately kind of evident and obvious that, that this is Judas, that, that this is his attitude because he's such a, a, a cunning liar. I mean, this guy just talks an incredibly smooth game. And so it's not immediately evident that that's how he feels. Uh, Bruce Milne points out, he says, The value of this perfume was indeed enormous, and now it's all gone in a society where the evidences of abject poverty were on every hand and starvation never far from the door of most households some degree of sympathy with Judas is at first not entirely misplaced why is this being wasted? you can hear his, his rebuke and on the surface who could argue with his logic at, at his rebuke of Mary's kind of wastefulness and his rebuke of Jesus for receiving it when, when, when the poor and the suffering are everywhere around them. How, how could you just pour this out and waste it like that? Yeah, the, the problem, however, uh, as John helpfully points out, was that concern for the poor, um, social concern for them wasn't even close to what had made Judas so upset by this act, which he considered to be such poor stewardship, uh, and what he'd been so offended by. The real reason for Judas's feigned moral outrage was that as steward of the money bag, to which apparently he regularly helped himself, he would now be deprived of, hey, like a fresh influx of finances from this item that Mary seemed very willing to depart with. He's now going to be deprived of this and, and opportunities to make personal withdrawals. That's really what's upset him. But the interesting thing to think about is that I think beyond his anger at the lost opportunity for personal indulgence from Mary's wastefulness, I think Judas is also just confused and confounded by Mary's actions as well. He just doesn't understand, like, what what is going on here? Because for someone who views life and reputation and possessions as, hey, these are things I worked hard for, this is mine, uh, seeing someone who views those same things as first and foremost belonging to God, it, it just seems reckless. It looks foolish, even wasteful. In fact, in Mark's parallel account of this same story, Mark 14, this incident right here is kind of the straw that breaks Judas's back. This is the thing that leads him to go to the chief priests and recommend betrayal. Because I think beyond even personal financial loss, I think it's just Judas, he, he looks at this and feels like the whole lot of them have lost their minds and need to be put out of their misery. They just, they don't, they don't get, they don't, they don't see what's going on around them, they they need my help. But here's the thing, to be very clear, at no point is this passage recommending, nor am I suggesting, that a biblical definition of stewardship is some kind of thoughtless, emotionally driven, consequences be damned kind of extravagance, just like, let's just spend it all, whatever we need, right, you want to get that, let's get it, it's all for Jesus, hey, that that's stewardship, like, no, that's not what presenting at all here. A biblical definition of stewardship absolutely includes wisdom, careful consideration, and yes, absolutely, taking protective measures in order to ensure the safety and longevity of whatever has been entrusted to us. It includes all those things. But do you see the key difference between Mary's and Judas's definitions of stewardship centered entirely around the issue of ownership? Who who owns this stuff that I'm stewarding? Which is strange because if you think about it, built into the definition of stewardship is a recognition that although I might be in possession of something currently, although I might have responsibility over this currently, its owner is still somebody else. I am the steward of it, but it's not mine. But you see, for the person who views stewardship as simply taking really good care of God's good gifts that now belong to me, it's unfathomable that anybody, even God himself, would have a say in how I should and should not use those things. They're, they're mine now. Of course, that's not an intellectually consistent belief because those same people who believe that would be horrified if they went to pick up their kids one day from school and the principal was like, no, no, you can't take any of these kids. They're, they're mine. They'd be like, what? But that's not. So it's not intellectually consistent. But it's that idea, hey, these things are mine now and I just need to Guard them and take care of them. And the question to consider as you think about this now, as it relates to your own life and and worship, is this How do you respond when the rightful owner of everything you call mine calls on you to pour out the things that you treasure, the things that he's entrusted into your care? And you're presented with that opportunity or that need. How do you respond? It's, it's never without purpose or reward that he calls us to do that, even if he makes clear what the purpose is or not, or if that reward is something we receive now, in this lifetime, or the next. But how do we respond? How do you respond when he calls? Because it's a diagnostic question that helps us really see how we view those things. Because the way you respond and the action that results from that response, no matter what else you say, no matter what other justification, reveals how you view those things, whether you view those treasures as mine or thine. I'm not saying there's not struggle, I'm not saying there's not difficulty, but it does reveal in the end how you actually view those things. In the early 20th century, the Communist Party of Korea ruled over that nation with an iron fist. And in one of the ways they sought to do that was to stamp out every trace of Christianity and the Christian church from existence. And one horrific example of this, Dr. David Yonkicho shares about a people's trial that took place one afternoon where a simple hole was dug in the ground. A Christian pastor and his family were placed inside and he was told if he would simply publicly disclaim misleading the Korean people with the superstition of the Bible, that he and his family could go free. He struggled greatly with decision. He he wanted to relent. But actually, at his wife's encouragement, he refused. And as shovelfuls of dirt began to cover himself and his family as they were buried alive, they sang hymns. And his wife was heard to comfort their children with these words, Hush now, children, for tonight we are going to have supper with the king of kings. Why this waste? Why this waste? This, this family could have gone on to share the gospel message with countless other people, uh, ministered to poor and suffering the church in Korea continue to grow and thrive for generations to come, if they would have just like, said whatever words these guys wanted them to say while holding Christ in their hearts, why have this waste? And yet as Dr. Cho concludes, he says, God did not deliver them, but almost all the people who watched their execution that day became Christians, many now members of my church. but how could they do it? How could they actually make this offering, which I think we'd all agree is, is far greater cost than even Mary's expensive pound of perfume? And I think along with that, uh, we probably ask the question, like, how can, how can we, how can I grow in my own willingness and ability to pour out what most times is going to be infinitely smaller treasures than this? How could they do it? Well I think firstly because they understood even their lives as not mine but thine. They understood God even my very life is, is yours to do with what you please. And that they understood that whether they received it now or went home to it, they would be greatly rewarded for their stewardship. But I think it's also because they understood they had a savior by whom and for whom all things were made and existed who gave up the glories and riches of heaven. They had a savior who, who gave up position and power and became the servant of all. And a savior who ultimately offered up his very life as well for ours, for the forgiveness of our sins and to restore us back to relationship with him. They understood that that's how Jesus had stewarded the very resources of heaven for our benefit. So they were merely trying to live out and mirror what they had seen exemplified by their savior. I think that's how they could do it. We've looked each week at these various statements that we've written to go alongside each one of these values that are that are created to both help clearly define what we mean by them uh, as well as to help inspire us towards an even deeper foundation on them. And the statement we've written as it relates to stewardship is this. Everything we have belongs to God. Start with that declaration. It's all his. Everything we have belongs to God. We are radically generous in the way we care and give as we follow God's supreme example of generosity towards us in sending Jesus for our salvation. Jesus' ultimate and supreme act of stewardship now inspires our stewardship of all the things that we call mine. And I wonder, in light of everything we've looked at today, Jesus' ultimate example, Mary's beautiful, fragrant example. How will you today better live out and live into this value of stewardship in your own life today? Take stock for a moment. Look, look through your list of all the things that you call mine, things you've earned and worked hard for. How will understanding stewardship this way change the way you view those things? The way you live into this value more? How, how will we as a church, collectively together, live out and live into this value more deeply today as a result of what we've seen? Uh, stewarding the financial gifts we've been entrusted with? Stewarding this building we've been entrusted with? Stewarding the people we've been entrusted with? How will we live this out differently and better today as a result? Again, living out this value this way is going to look foolish. It's going to look wasteful even to those who view their pile of stuff as mine and not thine. And as we've already said, man, this is hard. This is a struggle. We, we regularly kind of flip-flop on, on seeing things as thine and not mine. So we struggle with this ourselves to just live this out, no question. But, but I still believe there's nothing to fear. There's nothing to fear in risking an ever-deepening commitment to living out this value. Because I think there is fear, right? When we, we read about these things, we hear these stories, and we're just like, okay, I want to live that out. But man, does stewarding, being a steward like this mean that God's going to call me to like lose all my money? Just give away everything to, to live in poverty? Is he going to call me to like experience some kind of horrific, painful martyr's death if I live this out? And and I want that, that's, that's not what we're trying to describe with this value. That is God's call on some, yes. But for many of us, and pro- for probably most of us, it won't be. Stewardship, biblically defined as we mean it, first and foremost and ultimately is about a right mindset. It's about seeing correctly. That's what stewardship is. a right mindset that works to constantly remind ourselves and one another that everything we call mine is actually thine and then on the basis of that understanding seeking to live out our lives every day with this just open-handed way an open-handed way that really does offer up in the same way that we saw Mary doing whatever it is God calls us to to pour out whatever God might call on us to pour out and doing so willingly with acts of generosity whose beautiful fragrance will fill whatever room in which they take place. And we pray the fragrance of it will even reach heaven itself. That's what we mean. And that's the hope behind this value of stewardship. God, help us to have the courage and the faith to do this, whatever you call us to offer. Amen.